0: So, you know, solo entrepreneurs, some of them do very well, but generally it's, it's a team story. It's at least two co founders who can be sounding boards. And generally, I look for people who like hiring people around them as smart or smarter and then enable them all to work together. So, initially, these companies are, are more flat and they're dynamic, and the folks in the companies are bouncing off each other, figuring things out, you know, going back and forth, challenging each other. And now,
1: from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winoto.
2: If you're an investor in biotech and medtech companies, two things should always be at the top of your mind. Trends and team dynamics. According to Andrew Parkerson, companies must be hitting relevant trends that will drive innovation and return for investors. They also have to exhibit good team collaboration, chemistry, and commitment. As the managing director at Incube Ventures, Andrew spends most of his time investing in gene editing, cell therapy, biotech, and digital health. With decades of experience working in the life science sector and his especially optimistic attitude, Andrew shares valuable insights on building a successful team in the startup world. In this episode, we discuss the current trends and challenges in the life science arena, the importance of impact-driven work, and the need to strike a perfect balance between innovation and practicality. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Happy Friday! It's my pleasure. Thank you.
2: I know it's, it's so nice to have you. I feel like I've known you for a long time, uh, but you know this is a good opportunity for me to get to ask you a lot of questions that probably I don't know about you. So, uh, one of the things that I always like to start is a bit about your background story, your journey, uh, what took you to where you are today, why the interest in healthcare what influence you, who inspire you, that sort of thing.
0: Sure, there's a lot in there. All right, my journey, who inspires me? Okay, so um, I'll begin by saying that I'm an immigrant from Jamaica. As we were chatting um, uh, separately, uh, my journey here has been interesting because I came here when I was 10, and I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't know about the biomedical entrepreneur scene at all in high school and not really in college. So my story really um, began at at Berkeley. I went to Berkeley where I studied cell biology and uh, Slavic languages. And after graduating from Cal, I went to work at Genentech on the research side. So I was in the research side of um, a very exciting biotech company, Genentech, as you probably know, is one of the first um, in the world. And that was an amazing exposure to me in how a world-class organization works. And while I was there, I was promoted up in the management. So I also learned quite a bit about leadership. And that was fascinating. I was also there when Genentech was running, amazing to think about it now, but Genentech was actually running low on money. This is in the early 90s. And Roche showed up as a white knight. Um, if you remember, Roche actually acquired the whole company for $2 billion. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 months later, it took half the company public, raising $2 billion. And I thought that's a fascinating hat trick. How how do you how does a a capital structure play result in in this impact in, in innovation? And it really made me think I got to learn more about business. Mm-hmm. And in part of my journey, I'm I'm always curious. I'm always curious about the fundamentals that drive any in industry. And that thought process led me into getting an MBA. So I, mm-hmm. I was in Intec for a little under five years. I went off, I got an MBA at Harvard, and the Harvard um, experience was life-changing. I'm a West Coast guy. um, You know, Harvard's in Boston, East Coast, different culture. I loved it. I loved the the exposure to Boston. I had exposure to all these MBA types. Um, When I decided to go to Harvard, by the way, for an MBA, my genetic colleagues thought I was strange for doing that because they thought, you know, why would you get an MBA? But I wanted to learn about business. So I did that. And then out of business school, I uh, helped build the company up um, back here in the Bay Area um, with a friend of mine, Nathan Hamilton, who went to Berkeley and then Harvard with me. And the company was called Operon. So we built Operon up. Uh, Bob Saul was the, the primary founder. But Nathan and I took over the management and we built that company up and we had a very nice exit with it. That company made synthetic DNA. So that meant full length synthetic genes, and tiny DNA molecules called oligos. And we also pioneered the world's first um, whole genome microarrays for malaria and tuberculosis. And that was an incredible crucible of learning. I look back Mm -hmm. at how much I learned about business. And Harvard was amazing, and I met great people. But as far as actually learning the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur, I'd say 90% (laughs) came out of that experience. It was tough. It was stressful. We struggled to raise venture money. So it's an irony that I ended up in venture later. (laughs) And we ended up um, getting seven companies um, giving us term sheets to buy us, which I now realize is a really robust outcome of an M&A process. Mm -hmm. So we sold the company. Um, I became an angel. I began investing in various folks, including my partner, Mir Imran, who you know. Yeah. And um, Mir and I co-founded Incube Ventures. Um, Mir is a prolific entrepreneur in, in medical devices. And I've learned a lot from Mir. I think he's amazing. And that's a fast forward to where we are now. Um, as an investor, I like investing in gene editing, cell therapy, biotech, also med tech, and digital health, I think is very interesting. It's a separate mm-hmm. conversation about why I, how I think about investing, but... Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a long story short. Um I guess I will also say I only really learned about Venture Capital when I went to Harvard. I never really heard of Venture at Berkeley or a That
2: was a different time though. <laughs> different
0: time. That's very true. It's everywhere. You just
2: date it yourself.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's uh wasn't it somebody was saying like the 10% exposure, 20% reading or learning from others 70% is do by doing and that's what you're saying about your uh, so now that you're an investor you have the experience of being the operators Um, what are the certain characteristic or uh, trend that you look at when you invest in a company because everybody always talks about team 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 what does that mean when you, when investors say it's all about
0: the team, yeah. Well, there are two questions there. One is uh, what are the trends that are interesting, Another other is is you know what what does all about team mean. And I'll take those things in sequence. I think as an investor, let me begin, let me just as a side note say that some people say that if it's a really amazing company, the money is there, and I would say that's not always the case. Because there are trends and there are sectors where investors generally earn more rewards. So I'm a life science guy. This is a life science podcast. Um, But if you look at the broad industry of venture capital, AI is obviously a very hot space right now. That's a trend. And uh, AI slash ML, by the way, is I think it's, it's kind of embedded into how a lot of things are happening in biotech these days. It's not central to the thesis, but it's an enabling thesis, right? Computing power, smart computing power, especially around cell therapy gene, therapy gene editing and things like that. Um, but in, in life science, I think um, the, the areas where I think investors get rewarded the most, it begins with biotech, right? You look at where the returns flow back to investors. It's a super high level, biotech number one, medtech number two. Digital health is becoming very interesting. Um, it's still too early to you know, have a two decade, three decade story of returns. Digital health is clearly transforming the world. And then behind all that is diagnostics. And also, you know, vaccines are their own special thing, but historically diagnostics and vaccines have not been places where you're awarded. So digging deeper into it, I think in, in biotech, CRISPR-enabled innovations are at the beginning of changing the world of medicine. We are we are just in the foothills. Right, you think about Jennifer Doudna did with an Emmanuel Charpentier um, and also Jill Banfield enabling it. Um, that was 12 years ago, and before that, we, we can even do genetic circuit experiments. Right now, we're learning biology, and biology is complex, and we will need a lot of AI, by the way, to figure everything out. But it's all happening, so I feel like this is an incredibly exciting time to be playing in that area. And that's you call it, call it a trend. It's the beginning of just a, a mind blowing explosion. I think of, of innovation coming our way. So that's just kind of a, one obvious one obvious trend: gene editing, cell therapy. Those are hot areas. Um, I think areas that are interesting, like neuromodulation, can do a lot for patients. But sometimes it's rewarded, and sometimes it's not. Right, the public market side of that, the MA side of that. Um, the thing that really gets me excited, the, the two things that really get me excited. One thing is. Innovations that can change the arc of medicine. Once these innovations are unlocked, they never go back in the box. So we're we're changing the world. When I say we, I really mean the entrepreneurs, because people like me we just enable it. We're, you know, we're not we're not actually doing the change. But the second bit is these entrepreneurs. You know, I'm working with a group right now at a Berkeley, and it's one of these things again where it's a, it's just an incredibly exciting, dynamic team. They're spinning out of academia, but I've done this long enough. I can see that they they're going to they're gonna figure it out. They're going to deal with the downs. You know, they're ups. They're going to be downs. And there are things they're going to have to solve technically that are tough. And they just seem to have the DNA as a group already to, to figure it out. So for me, the, the, the team is, the team is is there chemistry among them? Is there chemistry with the opportunity? Is the opportunity big enough to be interesting for other investors to come in? Um, and are these people who are totally transparent Not just with investors like me, but also with themselves. You're going to build a company. Brutal self-honesty is essential. Essential. And you have to, ideally, you do it with people who you love working with, who will challenge you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, solo entrepreneurs, some of them do very well. But generally, it's it's a team story. It's at least two co-founders who can be sounding boards. And generally, I look for people who like hiring people around them as smart or smarter and then enable them all to work together. So initially, these companies are, are more flat, and mm-hmm. they're dynamic, and the folks in the companies are bouncing off each other, figuring things out, you know, going back and forth, challenging each other.
2: And so how do you see your role as an
0: investor at this stage? All right, so... As you as a person also, yeah, not uh, just investor in general. I'm saying I invest at different stages, All right. So... In the broad world of venture capital, people like me are considered early. But for people who do nothing but early investing, I I, I tend to... I do some things that are around the the company formation. This stealth company was not even a company until two weeks ago. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's that early. It's that early. Um, And when I come in that early, I, I, I look for... First of all, this is fun. This is the fun, the most fun part, but the hardest part. I look for the science that is world-class and informed by the latest developments in the field mm-hmm. with people around it who are just on fire to change the world around where they think it's going to go. Um, just as an example, this is not specific to this one self company, but if you look at the field of CRISPR-enabled therapies, getting CRISPR systems that can work inside the body instead of outside the body. Right now, they're generally outside of the body and you put the cells back in. Making something work inside the body, that's a big vision. And to make it work, you really need to have systems that have the very, very, very high specificity, very low off-target effects. And the FDA cares quite a bit about that. So there's an area there that is interesting. Um, Meditinomy is a company I've been involved with that is solving part of that. And then another part of the, the problem is, is delivery. How do you deliver these systems in a way that doesn't just go to the liver? How do you get it targeted to tissues? And how do you do it in a way that's safe and you can do redosing and you can work in the body? And there are lots and lots and lots of issues in what I just said. But those are big problems. And there are, there are exciting teams working on them. And some of them are tinkering around the edges, doing incremental things. And others are looking more fundamentally at where we can go And as an investor, I think you have to think very carefully Mm -hmm. what is a research project and what is actually ready for prime time. Um, So part of it also is how financeable is it? How many other folks can we bring into the syndicate to help build the company? So part of what I do is I I think about those things, you know, Mm -hmm. financeability, future syndicate, capital requirements, IP. In the case of companies inside UC Berkeley specifically, I think a lot about, how do we set the company up outside of, of, of UC? Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because the, the tech transfer people are, are great, but any University of California in, in, innovation, as I'm sure you know, is a, is a tech transfer side of it, and it's just easier to form the company outside of it and build the company outside of it. There are many more things I can get into. But those are just things that, if it's a first-time entrepreneur, I help them think about all those normal things. When a company is later stage and they already have a syndicate, and I'm joining the syndicate, usually it's because... My partner or I, we bring something in, something insider on regulatory or around on reimbursement. Where are the risks? And by the way, reimbursement is a big one. And how do you how do you get paid? Right, the whole side conversation. But digital health, diagnostics, med tech, biotech, the reimbursement outlooks are different in, in in all these different situations.
2: And I feel like so I want I do want to ask you about the reimbursement. But I want to go back to um, so. Share with us, like, how do you find all this stealth project?
0: Ah, yes, that is uh, literally, and how, how to
2: be found, too. <laughs> yeah, um,
0: you well, know, part of it is uh, you know, my bald head and my gray beard. Um, I've been doing this long enough, right? Um, it's a people business, and I really mean that. I'll say it again this is a people business, it's relationships and i don't run around looking for super early stage company formation because that is really as you know it's a lot of work it's a lot of work um i get a lot of inbound um and it's from people who worked with me and made money with me over the last you know i've been doing this for over 20 years and my passions are are my passions and i'm investing in people who i really enjoy and they tell their friends and they tell their friends i will say that if i'm going to find something very early it's almost certainly going to be in the Bay Area because that's where I live and it's where I, I spend the time with these super early stage groups, especially in, in academia. Um, I've invested in Boston. I'm in a company uh, out of UPenn right now. I'm in a company up out of Fred Hutch in Seattle. And those things come to me from relationships, other VCs, other entrepreneurs. But for the really early stage stuff, it's, it's almost certainly going to be in the Bay Area from people who, who know me. I live three miles north of Berkeley. So it's mm-hmm. no surprise that I, I know a lot of people at Berkeley. Stanford, by the way, makes it so much easier <laughs> to get companies off the ground. And so my partner Mir is down there and Talat's down there. So we see plenty of things out of Stanford as well. Um, so there you go. Relationships and people.
2: hmm So and then close proximity to where the science begins.
0: Helps. Yeah, but also, you know, I will say, just yesterday I was talking to another another VC and We were chatting about certain kinds of of, of trends, and they're they're working in some things that I think aren't that interesting. And so there's a filter I have in my my head where if you're doing an incremental innovation around, let's say, AAV as a delivery solution in the CRISPR space, my interest just kind of dials down. Mm -hmm. I'm already thinking what are the fundamental trends that are going to drive drive innovation and returns for investors right, in the next 10, 20 years. That's kind of mm-hmm. where my head is.
2: I think the nice thing about the Bay Area or the investor pool that we have is that every investor has different uh, viewpoint and then also horizon in terms of when they want to see the company. Uh That's right. Become successful or they get their exit. Of course, everybody wants it early, but then you know, sometimes when you want to work on something that's changing the world, it does takes a lot longer.
0: There's deep tech, which is a long, patient game, and then there's for me coming in later in companies that are already, already in the clinic, and those are deals where I expect a lower return. I expect mm-hmm. more private equity multiple, but I also expect much lower risk. You know, as a, as a VC, I think as you build your portfolio, you've got to be mindful about balancing risk. So your own investors, your own LPs have, have a good shot at getting the returns they want. Um, when you go super early, I think you just have to, the, the upside has to justify putting in, putting the risk around technology and clinic, but also time. Time is right. an ingredient that people often don't realize. It's it's an ingredient, it's an ingredient and yeah, and it's a good story.
2: And that's something that you cannot find more
0: of. Right, I wish. It's-
2: I wish. Yeah.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rudnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com.
2: So going back to what you're saying about reimbursement, uh, I mean, there's a lot more talk about reimbursement now than ever, but it's always been. And why now is even more? Is that is it because that a lot of the exit have to happen tend to be after uh, commercialization. That's why the reimbursement become everybody's problem. Is In the past, you can just pass it along to like, well, you know, I acquired a company and then the company got sold to another bigger company and then it's their problem. So that's why people don't talk about it so much. Do you
0: think? You know why they didn't historically and why they talk about it more yeah. now? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, I would say you probably know this as well as I do. Um, but I think the reimbursement question services in different ways, depending on where you are in the industry. Um, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, has uh, certainly changed the outlook for small molecule-based innovation, for example, bit of a side point. But, you know, what drives exits? Generally, the, the investing that um, my group does, we look for pivotal outcomes that are dramatic improvements and those dramatic improvements can often drive M&A without having to get commercial. I think you always have to be thoughtful about commercial, though, especially today. I think you have to plan for company going all the way. And if you can't get paid in a way that drives a cash machine to build a large enterprise, it's hard to get other investors to invest. It's hard to build the business, right? This is why diagnostics uh, has been tough historically to raise money for. The clinical trials are as expensive as as in other industries like biotech, but the reimbursements are, are capped. They're much, much lower. So I mean it's always been an issue. Now I think the aside from the IRA, one thing that I think is, is very much front and center, at least in my head, and you know more than me about this, but it's digital health. In digital health, digital therapeutics. What does it take to get an exit? Like we, we kind of know the model in some ways around you know FDA based pivotal pivotal trials med tech um, biotech, but in digital health, you often do need to get into the market and demonstrate that you're going to get paid that the payers are willing to work with you mm-hmm. because they're pioneering approaches that are that are new to payers, right? And payers are not known for innovation, right? No. I think, I think it's very I think it's very interesting. And um, one of your podcasts recently, this gentleman out of um, Israel and and New York, um, he had a very thoughtful approach to to mental health. Getting paid in mental health can be very tough. And if you can actually help the clinician, then you get that stakeholder on board.
2: Right.
0: And then if you can get a way to actually capture the patient outcomes in a way that the payers can buy into then you're getting something, but from the, M- and the M&A side, you still want to see it proven in the market. So I think this is a long-winded way of answering. I think reimbursing digital health is front the center now because everyone's trying to understand really how those models will shake out. I think in, my, in, in the therapeutic world, it's, it's more well understood. Mm-hmm. Um, biological molecules um, tend to do well on that front. In fact, right. I would argue that on the, on the cell therapy and gene therapy side, you know, getting $2 million of therapy. think possible. Just like, uh, there are issues there with access. There's a lot of issues. Right. You're excited about innovations that will make those $2 million therapies maybe half a million or a quarter million.
2: I think the challenge is also that uh, I think with the technology, you cannot charge anything for $2 million. But when it comes to the drug therapeutic. $2 million, that seems to be okay, and there'll
0: be people. Okay to it, point, right? If you charge $2 million and patients aren't, you know, driving $5 million to spend for hemophilia therapy, the, the math does seem to work. But the reality is, at $2 million of th- therapy, many countries just can't play that game. And I'm in this partly to change medicine for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the industry is gonna solve it. And I think that it's it's good we can start at these high price therapies and the math does work in, in certain cases. I do think it's gonna get there'll be some other major fundamental breakthroughs in these in, in the cell therapy and gene therapy space
2: though. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really interesting. Uh, time like you're saying that the CRISPR, what that's twelve years ago, and I think there's a lot of innovation as a result of that. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the question is that, as a healthcare, as a society, who is paying going to pay for that? That's right. And that's right. Only the few fortunate and unfortunate. I guess you you know because unfortunate because you have the disease, but the fortunate because you can afford it. That's and right. If you can
0: afford we, it. If you look at CAR T therapy right right now, and patients who qualify, uh, it's quite a, it's a small subset that actually get the therapy. Mm -hmm. It's price, but it's also just availability. And these are, yeah, these are bespoke precision medicine therapies that, you know, there's a capacity issue of just being able to make a therapy out of someone's cells. How many people, how many companies can do that? But like I said, it's early days. And I think history will look back on this moment as the beginning of some very exciting stuff. Yeah. So
2: going back, and I'm talking a bit away from the science a little bit on When you were talking about this is a people business, you're looking for a certain team dynamic. Um, Can you share us some example that you thought that you invest in the right people and then it turned out to be different from what you thought it would be? And then what do you learn from that?
0: Hmm.
2: I'm just assuming that sometimes you make mistakes too.
0: (laughs) Everyone makes mistakes. Yeah, you know, there was a company that um, we were involved with, I am not how many de- details should get into. Um, the company had gone through raising um, a Series A and a Series B, and the entrepreneur wanted to bring in a professional CEO. And we actually recruited a CEO out of a, one of the big public med tech companies, division president. Great guy, by the way. Great guy. Great on paper. But it turned out he just wasn't a good chemistry fit with the business. Right. He didn't he really brought a, a big company mentality to it and expected kind of a, an entourage of people around him to, that which wasn't appropriate for company at that stage. And that was a red flag, we should have probably reacted to sooner. Mm-hmm. And then on the fundraising front, he kind of thought it would just happen and took it for granted. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I feel like hiring CEOs is super hard. Mm-hmm. And by the way, because of this. When it comes to founding teams, I often advise them to hold on to the reins until it's really obvious that either they're not the right people to run it or you know, or, or they are, right? Mm-hmm. So in this case, he wasn't communicating transparently around the financing. And kind of near the 11th hour, we realized the financing wasn't coming together the way it needed to. And cr- frankly, we all thought it would because the company actually had good clinical data. And that company just died on the vine. It mm-hmm. just died in the vine because, yeah, uh, he wasn't the right fit. And we didn't. the board didn't get full transparency on the financing. And that was, that was tough. Mm-hmm. That was a good therapy, which just didn't make it. it you know, this is a while ago. And it turns out there have been other approaches that have solved it. So I feel like the market is ultimately getting to where it needs to get. But uh, it is tough. And I think it's, you know, no matter how good you are, when you bring a CEO into any situation, there's a bit of a roll of the dice because no one knows the chemistry with the opportunity until they're in it. I think the one way to maybe mitigate it a bit is have a bo- someone join the board, but even then, they're not operating, right? So I think it's, mm-hmm. it's cool.
2: Do you think uh, folks who work, tend to be like the leaders in a large company, oftentimes they got lured into the startup because that sounds like fun, but actually that's not... I mean, life is so different
0: when you are a so startup. Different. I think you're exactly right. I think they romanticize the startup life. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, one, one thing I learned from that is I asked people, how comfortable in your gut are you really <laughs> with risk? Because this is, it looks like it's not risky, but it is. Everything in the startup world is, is risky. So, and I probe to see if people can be honest with themselves. But again, yeah. I mean, no matter how long I do this, I think hiring CEOs, is just tough. Now, you know, when you invest in a founding team, I've had a lot of good luck with that. Um, I mean, there've been some teams who just, the science didn't work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That happens, right? right? And everyone's disappointed, but you go in knowing the risk you're taking there. Right. I've been pretty lucky with founding teams, as far as that goes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And do you think us... Uh investors and the fact that you've done the operating how much coaching and mentoring you provide to the founding team so that they can also grow along with the company
0: it's such a good question and it, it is so case specific you know
2: not everybody wants to grow with the company
0: well some of the everybody people wants to. Are, are repeat winners and they know what they're doing and they don't need my mentor or coach
1: mm.
0: um and that's great um other times, there are companies where everyone involved is a first-time person, and I don't get involved unless they're open to coaching. It doesn't have to be my coaching, by the way. There are plenty of good co- Part of my job is to bring good people around the company to help them figure things out. But um, there can be a lot of coaching when you're a first-timer, right? Some of these first-time entrepreneurs don't really, they haven't been trained in cap tables, <laughs> P&Ls what a Series A, Series B, Series C means, what the, you know how you build a company, how investors think about getting returns you know, back on their money going in. Um, this company, Operon, that I, I was a part of way back in the day, we didn't raise much much venture capital equity money. And some companies shouldn't. And mm-hmm. other companies need to raise lots of money. So for first time, you know, young companies, I happen to think through through all those things. Like in cell therapy uh, the, the flag is, this will take a lot more capital than you think. And in tools, it's often the reverse. Oftentimes I say, can you find a way to get prepayments from the pharma companies that'll help you capitalize the business, right? So I think it's all very specific, but I love coaching, I love mentoring, I love helping people grow. This is so, so much fun for me. I mean, I, I feel so lucky I get to meet exciting, brilliant people who are, who are trying to change the world. Mm-hmm.
2: I think that's a fun part of the deal. Yeah. Of the job, I bet. Yeah, because you got to see a lot of new ideas. Uh, it's almost like you're flipping catalog a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, so the investor asked me, how do I know when it's going to be amazing? And I said, well, part of it is I just know. I mean, <laughs> Part of it is we get optimistic, right, Christine? Part of it is I, I, I do enough, I swim in the science enough that when someone comes in and it seems like they have an angle and I diligence it and it's really coming up Positive, as an investor, you can get excited. I think you have to be an optimist, right?
2: Well, you have to, and I think uh, it also um, manifests too, because I think y- when you're optimistic, you figure a way That's right. out of it. And I think it's, I mean, I think being an uh, entrepreneur is uh, takes certain personality. I think <laughs> for sure, not for everyone, and no. I think. <laughs> It sounded, you know, people only hear the fun story when they make it big. Um, but I think you have to really love the
0: journey. I the journey... Everyone that and I warned them. I say, eyes wide open. This is going to be a journey where you were going to get challenged and you were going to have ups and downs often in the same day. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be okay with
2: that. I <laughs> know. Uh, I always say that entrepreneurs are... Uh, You have to have a good mental health balance in a way because you constantly straddle between. You have to be confident, yet you have to be humble. You have to be thinking short term, yet you have to think about long term. So there's always that polar opposite
0: that you have to go back and forth. That can be, yeah, it's absolutely true. And you have to be comfortable with that, "Ah," you know? Yeah. Don't go quite the way. How do you figure it out? That's why it's great having a team, right? Having a team (laughs) around you where you can. Help each other figure it out. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think that's 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 uh, often time it's helpful to when you have the team that somebody can trust because otherwise you go crazy just thinking about it on your own.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so last remark before I know we are short of time here. Um, any, if you have one advice for first-time entrepreneurs, what would that be? Boy, that's it <laughs> I know I don't want to do three because I felt like you know but if I went and do one like then I know like that's the one
0: <laughs> i'm pausing while I think about that because there's so many things to say to uh, different kinds of founders <clears throat> but um I, I guess one thing i would say is let me answer answered this way After you've done the introspection and the hard work to figure out that you're really committed to doing this, are you able to attract others around your vision, right? There is this line between um, passionate conviction and delusion. And if you can't get good people around your concept, that's a signal. That's on the negative side. On the positive side, what I would say is, and I've said this to a number of folks, actually, you go through all the kind of hard conversations. I say, OK, now that you're in this, it's 110% commitment. And you're going to just be in this with these people you love, and you're going to build something together. And remember that when the times get hard. Mm-hmm. Because inevitably, they're going to get hard. Yeah. So grab, grab your colleagues, grab your co-founders, grab the team, and, uh, and just remember why you're doing it, right? That's what's driving all of us. I'm impact-driven. I think everyone doing the work in our field is driven. Anyone in life science, innovation, I think, is driven by trying to make the world a better place. Otherwise, why would we be in this?
2: Exactly. Yeah, well said. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.